You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. The pod today is with Gary Bowles, who's an internationally recognized expert on the future of work and the future of learning. His focus is on the strategies for helping individuals, organizations, communities, and even countries to thrive in the transition to a digital work economy. Uh, he's the chair for the future of work for Singularity University, and his new book is called The Next Rules of Work, The Mindset, Skill Set, and Tool Set to Lead Your Organization Through Uncertainty. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the most. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kelly. Um, I've shared this story on, on this podcast that when I got my first job at 16 years of age, I was a bagger at Jewel Food Store in Wilmette, Illinois. I was astounded at how chaotic the business structure actually was. Very few people on the same page. And you talk about this in the introduction to your book, that we aren't really taught the rules of work. We just kind of figure them out. And then the problem, of course, is the rules change. <laughs> and that's probably always been true, but I think it's the change is much bigger right now. Well, one of the challenges is that not only are those rules often implicit, they're not explicit, a lot of people inside organizations won't always agree on what the rules are. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of behavioral cues about what you should and shouldn't do that are going to be different depending upon who's giving them. And all of that scrum sort of adds up together to something that we often call culture and uh, <laughs> is one of the least understood concepts in uh, the, the range of work that humans do. Uh, so let's talk about what the changes that's happening now. Um, you write in the book, quote, the modern global pandemic catalyzed disruptive change that had little to do with technology and everything to do with how we react to sudden shocks to the system. I think so many people are focused on the technology part of this. I, I want you to sort of unpack that. So uh, as I'm fond of saying, up until about January 2020, the future of work was mostly theory. And the theory was that robots and software are going to take all of our jobs. Yeah. And then in April 2020, along, you know, by, by that time, we were quite clear that a virus had come along. Uh, and I wrote a piece, an article 
uh, for Deconomy.com that I called the Great Reset. And essentially what I was saying was I felt that we've known for quite some time, for a very, very long time, that the dynamics of work were changing. And the rhetoric around automation and globalization, we've kind of been dealing with these things for you know since the dawn of human history. And, but the, there's two things that are different, and that's the pace and the scale of change. And what I was trying to say up until January 2020 was, I think the pace is accelerating. With Singularity University, we talk about exponential change. Um, and But I also think it's the scale. It's just changes are happening at bigger levels, and more people are involved in them. And the things that we used to take for granted in Silicon Valley that you know, new industries could be disrupted. And well, I think the world's kind of gotten that memo. Yeah. And, but with the, the framing was different. The framing that we put it into was these are things that are kind of being done to us mm. as opposed to things that we might actually be in charge of. And, and certainly what I, one of the reasons I point to the pandemic is I say it isn't the virus that did this. It's our response to the virus. We decided to lock down our businesses, work from home, send our students to do remote learning. Those were all decisions that humans made. And so many of these other aspects of work, the things that we say are inevitable, like the fact that automation is actually making certain jobs obsolete, those are decisions too. Robots and software don't take away jobs. Humans give them away. Robots and software just automate tasks. It's a human's decision if a job evaporates, and we can make different decisions. Um, you, you, you strike an a, a incredible note in the book when you say, quote, today a startup social media service can reach 1 billion users or more in a matter of months, and there weren't even a billion people on the planet at the turn of the 19th century. So when you talk about the scale, that, that is dramatic. Um, and, and, and I think it relates to what, what I'd love you to talk about is you identify three potential future of work models. Yeah. Can, can we go through each? So first off, I, I, it's uh, ironic that, you know, I'm, I'm adjunct faculty with, with Singularity University um, uh, and the, the, the title that goes with it is Chair for the Future of Work. And it's, it's uh, ironic because I don't call myself a futurist. Like, I don't think, right. I, I think of myself as really, you know, sort of a near-term, you know, a nowist with, with <laughs> sort of near-term scenarios, right? And so, yeah. so, but what ends up happening when you look at a lot of the research and the rhetoric, which are kind of inseparable, nowadays you don't get research without rhetoric. Everybody's got an opinion, not always an informed opinion, but everybody's got an opinion is you look at the research and the rhetoric around issues related to the future of work and future of learning, which are kind of inseparable, you find that they kind of fall into three bins. It's either all sorts of really dramatic changes happen normally pushed by automation and globalization. And if you think of it, I tend to overdo Venn diagrams and magic quadrants, but you think of it as here's all the work there is and here's all the humans that can do the work. And what ends up happening in the dystopian vision, which is you know sort of the pre-pandemic vision, is this shrinks. There's less and less work and more and more humans. And so it, there's just less things for humans to do. And then you get you know, Elysium or you know, pick your movie for the dystopian <laughs> outcome. That's one. The second is, oh, no, 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 no. There's this thing called AI, artificial intelligence software, robots. 
this expands. There's more and more work and there's only so many humans. And it's this amazing, incredible opportunity in the future. It's, it's a utopia for work. Mm-hmm. And then there's a third, which is they both happen at the same time. Right. And that third one is what we're experiencing right now. There are two recoveries from the pandemic. There's you know, the AI programmers who've mm-hmm. got lots of work and are getting paid to do that work remotely and are having a great time. And there's a whole bunch of other people that are do not have that skill set or do not have access to that work or can't do it digitally. They've got to be on site and they're having a completely different recovery. And that's really what's more likely to see as we continually have these shocks to the system on a global basis. What, what scenario do you think is most likely, or do you keep all three for a reason? Well, so, so the reason the third scenario is what's happening today, and there will always be more dynamics like that, is that if we sort of step back and we look at it as a system, which is there's a human and there's a problem to be solved that you're going to get paid for, and either you find that it's an existing job that we today we call job, mm-hmm. and tomorrow I call a portfolio of work, uh, or it's a, something you can create. It's you're going to be an entrepreneur, or you can convince a potential employer that that's a problem to be solved they haven't yet understood, and so they should pay you to do it. Uh, but if you work on the assumption that that's sort of the way it, that these systems work, but they're really complicated systems, and there's a whole bunch of macro things going on economically and so on, it's pretty likely that scenario number three continues to be true right. in different economies, different geographies, different mm-hmm. industries, the market mismatch, you know, how much work is available and how many people there are that's going to continue to oscillate. And so there are going to be some places, some countries that have deliberately designed to be resilient and insulate against those changes. If you look at, you know, in the pandemic, the United States, we went in three weeks from almost historically low unemployment, 3.7% employment to 18% unemployment Mm -hmm. overnight in Germany, it went from about the same to about a half to three quarters of a percentage more because they designed their system differently to keep people in jobs and to be as resilient as possible when these shocks to the system happen. So that's what's likely is we're going to see scenario number three in, in a variety of different industries and locations. In some places, people will be thriving and others, they'll be barely surviving. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is the history lesson you gave around the future of work and and this idea that really there was a level of disdain for work until a guy named Martin Luther came along um, and, then, and then some other figures after. Um, can I, I would love you to talk a little bit about that and also the story of the knitters and the Luddites because I, I, I find that compelling. Okay, so... All right, so a couple of quick things. So, so I'm a history buff, just, um, uh, and, our, and our son was an archaeology major. Um, and uh, and so, to me, it, it's always important to one of my father's favorite framings was uh, honoring the past, understanding the past through the lens of the present to create a better future. And he was doing that in the context of careers, and I like to do it in the context of just how we design more inclusive systems and or what I call involving systems. And so, but the basic premise was, I mean, really, 
always problems to be solved. We, you know, we, we come out of the womb, we, we, you know, we're, we're problem solvers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the problem initially we have to solve is somebody's got to feed us and take care of us. And eventually we develop our skills and we can do those things ourselves. But, but historically, what ended up happening in many cultures is there wasn't even a real label for work, at least not the way we understand work today. It wasn't consistently thought of as a job. Many work roles that developed over time, unless you were of the elite and you could think deep thoughts, you were basically focused on surviving, you know, th- hopefully eventually thriving, but, but you normally didn't have the resources to thrive in the way we think of it today. And so instead, you just did what needed to be done. And as a matter of fact, back around the time of Aristotle, who I reference a lot, it was thought of as a curse. If you actually had to work you were either of the lowest class or you were a slave because everybody else got to sit around and think deep thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so you fast forward to um, really the time of Martin Luther and the Reformation. And there's the whole, this whole new language that was essentially around an interpretation of what God wanted for you in life. And up until that point, God didn't really want you to have to work if you could avoid it. But then suddenly the you know, changed a little bit. And now, no, no, God wants you to work. And not only does God want you to work, but eventually he wants you to be well off. That was a sea change. And that led to so many of the ripple effects now in the way the Protestant work ethic came out of that time. And, and so a lot of our impetus for why we think we have to work actually was built from that construct. So, and then you want to talk about the Luddites really quickly. What ended up happening was, when work still wasn't really thought of as much of a thing, but we had these people called artisans. And, and it used to be, I'm sure you know, that when you made a chair or a table or a um, uh, house, you often knew how to do all of it. Like you, you kind of figured, you, you were taught, you were apprenticed, and you figured out how to do all of it. And then along came this mentality, which is if you broke it up into different pieces and you could automate as much of it as possible, what ended up happening is, well, when you would, for instance, you'd go to do a fabric, you you do a loom, uh, you know, you you used to do the whole fabric yourself. Well, no, you could break that up in different pieces, and then you could use uh, technology to do it. But the technology to do it in the 1500s and 1600s was really expensive. So only people with the most money could actually buy these these uh, devices, these um, weaver uh, weaving machines that could actually do the, uh, the weaving, and so others needed to tend it. And it was because their wages started to drop compared to when they used to do the whole thing themselves that they started going around and destroying these machines. Uh-huh. And, and there was a – basically, they, they took on this mythical character called Lud um, and called themselves Luddites. But what they were fighting against was not the technology. It was the power dynamic that they had their wages dropping. Does this sound familiar? Their wages dropping because you could bring in machines to do the work. Yeah, uh, I'd love that story. Um, uh, A thing that you're very good at is uh, reducing and reframing um, these concepts of things like work. Uh, And you say, and this is, I I think I I told you in one of our correspondence, I I have this now behind me up on, uh, uh, I typed it out that, quote, human work is just three things, our human skills to perform tasks to solve problems. I, I tried to break that apart. I tried to see if I was like, what, did, what is it missing? And I don't think it is. I think it encompasses exactly what work is. So 
I thank you. I I, I, I always prefer that, you know people whenever possible challenging me on these things because you know mm -hmm. I, I'm one guy. I haven't you know can't can't think of it. You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong on a lot of these things. But the reason I sort of broke it down to that is that first off, remember those robots and software. You know yeah. they automate tasks. It's that middle part. <laughs> Uh, they 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 don't have skills what we would normally call skills and they're not good at solving problems actually what they are good at is performing tasks and but machines have been that's what they've been good at since the you know some of the initial tilling machines that were used uh, in uh, in old England and so so instead what happens in the modern organization is we tend to group tasks into what we call processes steps we go through. And we forget what the problem to be solved was, and we forget what the human skills that were needed, and we just focus on the process. When have you ever heard, oh, that's not how we do it here? Yeah. That's the process mentality. That's the task mentality. And when I said that it, basically robots and software don't take jobs, what ends up happening is as you automate more and more of those tasks, there's this new thing called robotic process automation, which is essentially software that watches you do your work and then reproduces it. Uh, if all of that adds up to a set of tasks that used to be an entire job, oh, well, how do, how do Americans deal with it? So we just fire them, lay them off, mm -hmm. and go hire new people to do the problems to solve for tomorrow. There's no way we could get this person to get trained fast enough to do the new problems. Let's just lay them off and go get the new person. And and that's a human's decision. Like, you know, again, there are other economies, Finland, for instance, that have, are all about inclusive work and trying to encourage instead employers to say, no, 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 let's keep that person learning to stay ahead of the curve so that they develop new skills to solve the problems of tomorrow. I had mentioned to you before we started taping that we're working with Duke uh, University right now on a project. And in one of our discussions last week, uh, looking at what we're going to build together, um, which is about inclusive teams. Uh, the, the idea uh, was like, we really have to know our people and we don't know our people fully. Um, and you express that. And, and when you say, you, you quote, need to understand each other's superpowers, because that's not something that we do or recognize because people don't necessarily bring their full self to work. They're maybe a little scared to do that. But that 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 was always vital before, but it's like going to be incredibly vital in in this next world of work, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I often show a picture of an iceberg, and I say, so first off, if you're in a company of any size, you only know about the human skill set, capacity, and human potential. Uh, of this tiny little tip of the iceberg. And there's all this other amazing potential that you didn't hire them for, you don't know about. Uh, and then along came a virus and suddenly you're talking to your coworker on a Zoom call and you look in the background, you say, I didn't know you had kids. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know, look, there's a musical instrument on your wall. I didn't know you played the guitar. Uh, I, you know, there's all this capacity that we didn't know about because we only cared about that tip of the iceberg. And it's the same for each of us as individuals is we, there's a peculiar aspect of our, the way our minds work that we tend to discount the things that we're good at. So what I call superpowers is the combination. It's the magic quadrant of what you're good at and what you love doing. And my father, you know, he actually came up with this construct you know, 50 years ago. 
um, in a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And what he said was, you know, essentially what we want to do, he didn't use the label superpower, that's my label for it, but essentially the whole process of trying to understand, remember those skills Mm-hmm. that are the one of the basic building blocks of work, if you understood your own skills better and you could actually map them across this, you're going to find that there's a bunch of stuff you're good at, but you don't really love to do. And we all have to do some cruddy job. You were talking about bagging groceries. I made two piles of paper out of one and faxed them someplace. And I don't know. Uh, you you know what a fax is? I often ask audiences. Anybody here seen a fax? Because you know, young people, what my my twenty five year old tells me to spell it. <laughs> so so, but that upper right is the magic quadrant. So, and what you find is that my father found this out years ago. Is people don't normally go to something they're good at and then learn to love it over time. It's the other way around. I love doing this. It's a problem I love to solve. It's people I love to work with. It's a kind of result I like to get. Uh, it's a kind of skill I like to use. And as you develop a love of it, you get better and better at it. So that's the superpowers that a team needs to all understand is the optimization. Who is actually all in on developing these skills or using these skills? And how do you assemble that as a team? Uh, it was funny yesterday. I, I, a few days ago, I got an email from a former intern at, from Second City who asked uh, for an informational interview and she was kind of having a hard time. And I said, of course. And uh, she graduated uh, DePaul, moved back to Ann Arbor when the pandemic hit. Thought, she had thought she wanted to work in late night comedy. Now she was thinking she wanted to be a counselor, which she's going to need to go to grad school. And so having just read your book and, and she was looking for advice, I'm like, you know, find the thing that you love to do and, and a place that will allow you to, to do that. Um, and she immediately turned the question on me. She's like, well, what, what do you love to do that you ended up where, where you are? And I, I had to think for a moment, but I realized like, oh, I'm, I love dot connecting between things that are unusual. That is, the, that is the, the thing I love doing. And so when I was reading the book, the, this, this quote came up which, uh, from the, your book, quote, games are not only problem-solving situations, they also have the incentives for solving the problem baked into them, delivering pain for losing and pleasure for winning in a range of contexts. And that's what we sell to corporations. We sell these improv games as learning modules for what we call social skills, which I think you might call flex skills you yeah. know, you know, and human skills. And, and I'm like, oh, well, that's a constant dot connecting because it's not, it's not easy for someone just to understand that on the first say. But then when they do it or you go a little deeper, you know, that light bulb comes off. No, I think one of the things that you guys have done, I think is amazing is what's really critical is to continually spark people to, to develop their own love of problem solving and the skills for doing it, but to do it as creatively as possible. What, mm-hmm. what, do you, what you find is that uh, our, our education systems seem almost designed, as Sir Ken Robinson yeah. um, often said, to leech out our love of creativity. You, there's, there's not a kid in the world that isn't born loving to play games and solve problems. And there are very few kids that survive with that level of enthusiasm by the yeah. time they've been to the meat grinder of many educational institutions. And, and so what is critical is to, to spark that again for individuals. And I think especially in the context of teams and to do it in a way that actually helps to celebrate each individual's uniqueness to give them a safe place to be able to do it, which is what humor often allows them to do, and to be able to do that in a collaborative manner so that they build 
far more cohesion between them. And all of those, you, you can take every single aspect of that and say, well, oh, that's what team building exercises. But if you do it with humor and you do it with humanity, what you've done is you've continually helped people to re-anchor in what makes each of us unique. Um, you say, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, you, <clears throat> give me one second. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> uh, you cite the future of jobs report from the World Economic Forum in the book, which is something I do in almost all my um, uh, keynotes. Um, and uh, the 2020 report cites analytical thinking and innovation, active learning, complex problem solving, critical thinking, creativity, leadership, digital skills, resilience, and reasoning. Those are all flex and self skills, right? The coding's not in there. Yeah, yeah. The only the only one digital skills like yeah, that's sort yeah, of like yeah. a tool set thing, right? I I yeah. sort of in the book I break it down to mindset, skill set, and tool set. Digital skills is like your ability to use tools. I mean, the, the, you know, the, 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 the skill set of you know, using this, this type technology, pen, yeah. uh, the pen in the past, uh, you know, that was, think, think of that as like a baseline skill set. Now it's if we can't use a digital distraction device, uh, what we often call cell phones, uh, then that's sort of a baseline, right? So that's just, that's just table stakes. Everything else, though, is exactly as you say. Um, this research guy, I talk about going back to the 1950s by this amazing guy by the name of Sid Fine here in the United States, Department of Labor, and uh, and basically just broke skills down in different categories. And what we've done is we've over-indexed on what I call no skills, um, yeah. uh, colleges, and and realized that the shelf life of information is evaporating. <laughs> it's you know blindingly short for many fields and industries, but it's these skills, the flex skills that are usable in a range of different situations, some of which are social, some of which are problem-solving skills, some of which are analytical skills, but but they're all usable in a range of different situations. And that is where we have to over-index, especially for early learners, so that they can continually solve problems in a range of different contexts and not just in these very narrowly defined silos. All right, there's something I've never admitted on this podcast, but so, you know, I've done oh, hundreds and hundreds of these things. I read all these business books. I hate reading conclusions. The conclusion chapter is garbage almost always. Almost always, it's just like, you've already told me this in like 700 different ways, and now you're rolling it down, or it's just like a tag on. And I know this because when I wrote my book, the, the, I you know, took 15 minutes to write the conclusion chapter. It was not good. Your conclusion chapter was fascinating. In that you'd set up all this information and then you came in with like, okay, here's the complexity, even further sort of making the argument for complexity, but in a very interesting way. So one of the things you cite is, hey, here's a problem that has always been a problem and will continue to be a problem, which is power dynamics. And I don't think enough people talk about that. Uh, And I want you to sort of unpack what, what what you were bringing to the table when you talked about that in the conclusion. So, so first off, thank you for not sleepwalking through the final chapter because I wanted to wake people up. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think you know, way, way too many of us who write, we kind of also. Um, I mean, this is my first book. I mean, I've done a lot of lecturing and, and a lot of online writing. So, and I know, I know, at, at you know, almost sixty-five, I'm, I'm still too young to have you know, many thoughts about these things. But I figure, you know, people still hopefully will still listen to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 premise of the conclusion was: look, let's just step back. And let's look systemically, right? Because I've walked sort of through 
what I think are some of the ways that we can hopefully build what I call more involving uh, world of work uh, and, and, and help people be more effective in their work, to have growth in their work, and then to be aligning themselves in their work. But these happen against a fabric, a background, a systemic background. And let's just go ahead and let's label a lot of these things. Now, a lot of people don't like to talk about power dynamics because it makes them uncomfortable. These are big, complicated systems, especially when you talk at the macro level for a country or a region. Uh, and it sounds transactional. But the truth is, when we do work, there's a problem to be solved. And we have these skills. And if somebody's paying us for it, it's, there's something transactional going on. Like the, the customer wants something. The employer wants something. The worker wants something. And so we're all trying to figure out between us, like, how does that work? One of the reasons that the pandemic was so pivotal is because it broke the seal on so many of the assumptions, the stories we had told ourselves about what we had to accept in the world of work. We told ourselves we had to get in a car and we had to go to a place and we had to see each other every day from nine to five or whatever hours. And then we had to drive home and, and, and we had to have managers who could only trust people if they could see them in front of them, what I call management by surveillance. And so we told these stories to ourselves but what they created was a power dynamic where, oh, the employer is paying us, or I'm an employer, I'm paying somebody. This is what I should be getting out of this. Yep. And, and if you think of it as a table, if you picture it as a table, every country has a different set of dynamics and every industry has a different set of dynamics and different people have more power to balance the table. You know, if you're if you have a in-demand skill set, you're that AI programmer and you can walk out of Stanford and make $250,000 a year, you're at the you've got a more than a balanced table. It's tilted towards you. You get to write your own ticket. But if you are a frontline worker, a phrase incidentally none of us used before pandemic, and you've got to be on site and you've got to be waiting on tables or you've got to be waiting on a person in an emergency room, you have less power. You've got yeah. to be there. And so what I try to help people understand is the more that you can understand those dynamics and the more than you can call them out. And the, if you're trying to build a more inclusive company, if you're trying to involve more people, if you're trying to help a range of different populations that have been under advantaged in the past, you've got to understand these power dynamics so that we can balance the table more. And in some cases, that's collective voice, collective bargaining. And in other cases, it's simply having everybody have more agreements between them. Think about now, you, compared to a year and a half ago, could you ever have used the phrase, I would like to work remotely? Right. Never. Yeah. And now if you're an employer and you cannot make that part of the conversation, you're not even going to get into the conversation with a whole bunch of people whom you might want to hire. It's a hard gift to accept. And, and, and one of the things that the pandemic taught those of us who work in the theater world was that there were so many tropes that we took pride in, which were actually a form of abuse. And the biggest one is the show must go on. The biggest one. That's and awesome. you, you talk to theater people pre this, it's like there were, you know, uh, blizzards and it's like, and we did the show and we did that. And it's like, well, maybe don't do the show and be safe. You know, and, and, and the actors coming back to us now where we used to have these you know, late night improv sets at one in the morning, like it's too late. That's too late. And like, you're right. And, and guess what? We can shift the time. We're the human beings who can actually shift the time. It's not written in stone, but, but we assumed it was written in stone because we're swimming in water. So we can't see water. Uh, yeah. And so 
taking that as a gift right now is something that we're trying to do. It's not easy. It's challenging assumptions. It's like we might screw up, but we've got to take it. And I think that that is, I'm hoping that other industries that are not run by a bunch of softy liberals uh, will also, you know, take the clue and maybe look at, at the changes that they need to make. But I think that's an awesome insight. And you've actually hit on a very important part of the power dynamic, which is we tend to think of these things as almost zero-sum games. Yeah. But if instead we just, let's just change the context and you can co-create with your customer or your audience. All right, so we can't do that. Now, what can we do together? What? And, and so this has actually been a tremendous amount of the innovation. Uh, Heidi and I, we, we're, we're event producers in many cases. Yeah. That's a lot of the projects that we do is conference, you know, strategic conferences. If there's been any innovation, it's been people that used to get people together in person and now they've got to figure out what does that audience want? And if the more adaptive and nimble and co-creating kinds of people and organizations are the ones that have been able to work with their customers, work with their audiences and figure out what do you want? You know, we're doing in a week, we're less than a week, we're doing a virtual event, 126 speakers, 26 countries from around the world. We could never have done this no. in person, never have pulled it off. There was no way they would travel. So now we've opened up the aperture and said, let's co-create together what that experience is, and let's bring the audience in as part of it early on so that we all work together to develop this new value that we can create together. Uh, two more things I want to touch on before I ask you for your SEN story. So this podcast is also feels like it's like a, a, a bi-monthly dunking on Milton Friedman, um, which I'm fine, fine with that, University of Chicago. Oh, go ahead. He, um, he can take it. You write in the conclusion, quote, capitalism's flaws are systemic and systematic. They are not accidents. They're not bugs. They're features. Talk about that. So uh, 20 years ago in the post-2000 uh, meltdown, uh, which was driven by technology here in Silicon Valley, we, we have to take, we got to own it. Uh, we became very passionate about what we called um, accelerating the flow of capital to good. That is, how can you have business have more purpose and create a better economy and a better world of work for all. And uh, 20 years ago, people laughed at us, <laughs> uh, whether they were high net worth advisories or people in banks or people, um, venture capitalists. And now this whole thing about doing well and doing good and business with a purpose is kind of a thing. And, uh, and so what we, what we said back then was very, very simple is, this is basically an opportunity to rewrite rules. Again, economies are not uh, in organizations. Humans write those rules and we can write different rules. What we've done since Mr. Friedman mm -hmm. pushed for the idea that the most important person to make happy is a shareholder. Well, guess what? That was at a time where most of the shareholders were mom and pops owning AT&T. And now they're mostly owned by algorithms. Yeah. Literally, software holds a stock for a nanosecond to hand it off to somebody else in a nanotransaction to make more money. We financialized that entire system. And so the shareholder is actually a myth. The shareholder is an algorithm. And if all we're going to do is change a system to make it more human then we've got to change that power dynamic. We can't have the people who run organizations. I don't use the word leader very much. I say the people who lead, because I think we've lost the meaning of the word leader, but the people who lead in organizations who can be anybody, but typically the ones that are best paid, 
they have to have different incentives. Yeah. And I think we're shifting that power dynamic, but we've got to get away from this financialization, this single quarterization of the way we think about performance. We have to have a longer aperture for how we're thinking about what the value of the organization is creating with creating. And we have to do it with the range of stakeholders, workers, customers, partners, suppliers, the communities in which we work, all of those are stakeholders that we need to make part of the fabric of priority and decision-making for organizations. And if we do all that really, really well and build profitable businesses, the shareholders will be just fine. Uh, And lastly, well, um, we, we had a run of podcasts that were around ethics and tech. Um, and you write in the conclusion, quote, if an organization uses its profits, uh, oh, no, not, I'm going to do a different quote, uh, quote, when a business model is dependent on, say, manipulating our attention, it's very difficult to maintain a net positive impact on society. I mean, this is the, the idea that we do not have seatbelts for social media and we need them. Yeah. Well, so, so one of the challenges we've got is, in, and I give Silicon Valley innovators a tremendous amount of uh, respect for Coming up with ways to hack markets, hack human attention, and come up with really, really good business models. The problem is that what ends up happening when you unbundle, which is a phrase that my friend John Hagel um, uses, um, uh, when you unbundle all of these industries that they're just, I wouldn't call them natural dynamics, but they're unnatural dynamics that basically aggregate all that value into ver- a very small number of hands. One Amazon, one Google, one Facebook, one, and just keep on going, industry yeah. after industry. And the problem with especially social media is that if we were to disentangle the business model from the services that are being offered, we have a couple of great examples where that's been done and massive value to society happens. It's called Wikipedia. It's Mm. been unbundled from a business model. And what has happened instead is we have created, it's not perfect, but then nothing humans do is perfect. Um, uh, But we've created a model, a a framework, a fabric of value creation that creates continuous and great beneficial value to society. And, that, and that's what we need to do more of. And the problem is when the business model is so clearly based on hacking human attention, and not just our attention, but human decision-making. As, mm. as uh, my friend Roger McNamee um, is fond of saying is, it's no longer that, you know, because you're not paying for it, so you're the product. Mm-hmm. You're, you're actually the fuel. That is, we, can, we can't just put an ad in front of you, we can get you to click on it and to continue to make a series of choices. Well, that is a horrible incentive for a business. And so we need to come up with different structures for how we actually incent people to be able to put their attention on things so it doesn't just reinforce these business models that have such a negative impact on society. thousand percent. Uh, all right. We always end with a yes and story. Do you have a yes and story for us? So, so tell me what, <laughs> remind me the, the, the context for yes and, because I know yeah. I'm going to get this wrong if I don't. So in, in, the, in the parlance of improvisation, uh, when two people are making something out oh, of yeah, right. okay. yeah. uh, they, they, they don't get anywhere by saying no. And they actually don't get that far by saying yes. They say yes, and they affirm and contribute in order to explore 
and heighten. So it's how we get to an abundance of ideas. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, behavioral economics tells us that most people's uh, default position is to say no or do nothing. So yeah. I'm wondering in your life and your career, is there some point where you were like, I'm not going to this party and you go to the party and you meet the most amazing person you've ever met yeah. or something like that? Yeah. So, so uh, frequent ones, because as it turns out, my people detectors are, are actually very, very poor. Heidi's are amazing. Uh, you know, she, she's one of these people that just get people immediately mm-hmm. and we'll go, we'll, we'll leave, we'll leave a, a meeting with them afterwards. And, and she'll say, but that was really just an amazing person. I'll say, well, yeah, I thought so too. And then another one, well, oh, I don't know if we can trust that one. What do you mean? I thought they were amazing people. So I'm the one to always just, you know, everybody's great conversation. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, but I, but I will say there was, there was one circumstance where um, we, we actually had an opportunity uh, that, that wasn't certain we should, we should be taking. Um, and, and, and it was, uh, we got this call from this little, speaking of social media, we had this call from this little company called Google uh-huh. and they had a problem that they needed to solve. And I wasn't certain whether we really would be able to help them solve it. We thought, okay, so what could go wrong? And and actually, our partner that brought us in to talk to Google this just after they went public, mm-hmm. and they said, oh, they want to do something sort of strategic and you know bring people to their campus and that kind of thing. And we said, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's sort of what we can do, but but all right. So here's here's an idea, and the partner said, oh, that's a really rotten idea. We we shouldn't even put it in front of them. I said, oh well, maybe we should just drop this. And I said, no, no, let's just give it a shot. And the partner said, okay, then we're out. Hmm. And uh, I said, oh, fine. Okay, if we have to go in on our own, we'll just go in on our own. And so Heidi and I are literally driving down. There's a story she loves to tell. We're literally driving down to Google because i got to bring somebody with me. Somebody's got to look like more than just one person in the company. And she said, what's Google? Uh-huh. <laughs> 2004 right so yeah right. and uh and so we get in and, and and we pitch and we think okay there's no way this is gonna they're gonna be interested in having it they they want they want, bought it they wanted us to help and so we ended up helping them to found something called zeitgeist which became their annual partner forum we were consulting um we helped them to, to make, you know, conceive of it and and produce it for nine years and uh, and it led to all this additional value for us. But it was one of those things where it's like, oh, should we do this? Should we not? Okay, we probably shouldn't do this. Oh, but we took a risk, and it yeah. actually worked. I love it. The book is called The Next Rules of Work, The Mindset, Skill Set, and Tool Set to Lead Your Organization Through Uncertainty. Gary Bowles, thank you for coming on the show. Okay, that was great. Awesome. Take care. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGM Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive 